Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're finishing our series today, Christmas Hyper Hope, with a message titled, Why There is Reason to Hope. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, verse 14, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. The reality of evil and the rise of hope are two counter themes I've been considering. You know, the glass half full person, the optimist, will find reason for hope. And the glass half empty person, the pessimist, will also find reason enough for despair. And I think that one can make a fairly compelling case for either one of those two positions. And where's the world heading? I mean, the optimist will say that we're heading towards a glorious future. Already the wealth of the average person is where it was never before. Technology is making our lives easier. Why can't we envision longer lifespan and greater progress against disease and finding ways to reconcile long-standing disputes between nations and people groups? Now, we're not where we want to be as a world, but surely we're making progress. But the pessimist will make an equally convincing case, and might I add, perhaps a more convincing case than the optimist more frightening weapons than ever before, increasing willingness to use them, radical and fanatical religious beliefs among a great portion of the human race that seem comfortable in inflicting much mayhem as possible. That with the rise of technologies, the unexpected and unanticipated negative consequences of our new inventions, hate, misinformation, factionalism, as well as the appeal to harmful sensuality, all this is exasperated by our technology. Our technology, while so helpful, has left us more vulnerable than ever before. And on top of that, the potential for using this technology to control masses of people is an ever greater temptation. So shall we hope or shall we despair? Is there genuine hope or is that all just hype? Now, Christmas is the celebration of the birth of Jesus and it changes the discussion. And why is that? Because John 1.14 tells us, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That is the eternal word of the Father, the Son of God, who has always and eternally existed as God, in the fullness of time, stepped into the human race and became a man. And with that moment, something in the history of the world changed, something that would make us believe that hope wins out. No, this is not the hope that with time and enough technology we can solve all of our problems. This is the hope that God has stepped into the human race and he offers us what no human being can offer, genuine hope stripped of all hype. You know, for a week now, as a Christmas theme, I've been addressing the matter of hope versus hype. And I've said that the Bible itself addresses the two themes of despair and the theme of hope. Despair because the human heart, even at the point of our greatest possibilities, always turns to darkness. From Cain, the firstborn child on earth, and the hope that he might be the one to crush the head of the serpent, such hope, and yet he became the world's first murderer, not the world's first deliverer. And he spawned generations of warlords and murderers after him. Oh my, all that hope and nothing but hype. Do you see it? The Bible is not an unrealistic book about, you know, fairies and crystals and telling us that the age of Aquarius is about to break out upon us. 
Instead, the Bible takes an unblushing look at the profound evil in the world and in the human heart and tells us where this will eventually lead. It leads to Armageddon and the complete devastation of the human race. And that would be the end of all of us. But there is the Christmas message. God himself has stepped into humanity. Unto us a child is born. Eventually the government will rest on his shoulders, and in that day men will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and they will retire their bloodlust for war. This is my message over this last week. Christmas is the only hope the human race has, and that's why it's so very sad when we take this glorious news and turn it into hype, making it shopping and lights and parties and time off from work. Look, I'm not against any of that. I mean, how could I be? With such glorious news, we should take time away from work, and we ought to celebrate. But the sad thing is that the world has forgotten why we were celebrating in the first place. But all that notwithstanding, today, as we draw this short one-week series to a close, I thought I would place the Christmas story, or to put it in theological words, within the history of redemption. And to put it into words that we can understand, to understand how Christmas fits into God's grand rescue plan for the human race. But in order to begin, let's step back to creation itself. The question that needs addressing is at the very outset is to ask and to answer why God created in the first place. And the answer is most certainly not that God was lonely and was desperately looking for company. And of course, with that thought, that the eternal and gloriously perfect God has needs that need to be filled and that we as human beings can fill what's lacking in God, well, isn't that the height of human deceit? As Paul told the Athenian philosophers, God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Unlike the gods and goddesses of the Greeks and the Romans, the one true creator needs nothing. Psalm 50 records God as saying, if I were hungry, I would not ask you. And that is to say, not that I am hungry, but if I was, you certainly would not be the ones I would come to. We human beings supply God with nothing, whereas he supplies us with everything with life, the body in which we exist, a soul that allows for self-awareness, the air that we breathe, the food that we eat, a world with resources to cover our nakedness. He supplies us with everything, and we supply him with nothing. So why then did God create? Well, Isaiah 43 verse 7 says that God created all that he did for his glory. And that is to say, the creation is an expression of his greatness, his his excellence, his majesty, his perfect magnificence. This is a showcase of the great God as he spoke the universe into being, along with all the complex principles that hold every last particle in place. God has expressed his satisfaction with himself. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, always in perfect fellowship, always full of joy in each other, expressed this joy in the creation of a universe. But more so, they expressed this joy in the creation of human beings. But here, for reasons that we may not fully understand, it is the will of God to progressively fill an already splendorous creation with his glory. And so as the expression of his master plan, God creates a man and a woman, his image bearers. Not that they were God, they're not. They're temporal, he's eternal. They were limited in wisdom and understanding, he was omniscient. They needed tools to govern, he was all-powerful. He could simply speak a word and it would be done. But his image bearers were to discover the one true God and delight themselves in him. 
And out of that delight, fill the world with offspring and then bring their delight in God into all things that they ruled. That was the grand master plan. All creation and human beings, the crown of the creation, created to express the happiness of God in himself and in his glory. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. You see, the heavens already declare his glory. But on the other hand, look at Habakkuk 2 verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See, on the one hand, the heavens, the earth, the creation already declares God's glory in the sense that it showcases his wisdom and power. But on the other hand, God has a purpose for the creation that it will be progressively filled with his glory. And this is the Bible story. But step back for a moment and think what this says about our theme of hope or hype. What will the future bring? Think of it. If the eternal and perfect God could speak a universe into being, do you not think he could also speak his purpose progressively in the creation? Now, the man and woman were commanded to fill the earth and rule it. As image bearers of God, they were to fill this earth with purpose, showcasing the goodness of God. But that's the first part of our story. The second part, a part we might argue has gone on to this day, is that the man and woman rebelled against their creator. They doubted the goodness of God, and they, in pride, decided they'd rather be gods themselves, not God's purpose, their own purpose. Now, to be clear, This was not the idea of our first parents. That idea was planted into their heads by the serpent, the enemy of God. How he comes into the picture, we're never told, but clearly God allowed him to be there, and he deceived us. And ever since that, while there has been a hope that on our own, we really can build heaven on earth, that we can achieve meaning and purpose apart from God, that's the hope, but that's hype. We have wars and diseases and hunger and want and hatred and envy and murder and strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander. We can have insolence and haughty and boastful spirits. We are inventors of evil. We're heartless and we lack mercy for the suffering. And ultimately, we have become haters of God. And as we attempt to build our own towers of Babel, claiming that we can be gods, we are being defeated. And all of that was true of us until the birth of that one child in Bethlehem. There's no denying that these past few years had been full of hardships on a global scale. Can you imagine facing these troubles daily without the knowledge of a sovereign God? I can't. The reality is that there are millions of people around the world living every day without that assurance and searching for it in places that only return empty. That's why the mission of Back to the Bible Canada is so critical. This ministry exists to resource people with the only source of eternal hope and truth as revealed in God's Word, both faithful and uncompromised. As we close out our calendar year, the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada have a goal to raise $517,000 by December 31st. Please join us as lives are changed through the consistent, faithful teaching and engagement of the Bible. Consider a gift today by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
I've not been arguing that God simply allowed the world to go its own way until the birth of Jesus. Well, he didn't. He raised up a man named Abraham and through him brought into being the chosen people of God. And he did more. He gave Israel the Ten Commandments, which is a statement of what's good and what's evil. God has not allowed us to wander in wickedness without revealing his holy law and describing righteousness. God also gave Israel a promised land, and in that land there would be a capital city, Jerusalem, and there would be a temple in that city, and it would speak to the whole earth about the one true God and what he offered the human race. And all the Gentiles were invited to come to that temple and pray to the one God with the assurance that he would hear their prayer. Now, in one sense, the earth is without a witness. And by the way, I mean that individual cultures and people groups on the earth continue to walk in their own way, sometimes with great promise and sometimes with disaster. But there was a witness in the earth, and that witness was in Jerusalem. That is, until the chosen people were proved to be no worse and also no better than the rest of us. As their sin multiplied and they refused to listen to the voice of the prophets who came and warned them about their behavior, and eventually, because they did not listen, the nations of the earth invaded, and the temple was burned to the ground and was no more. Again, let me stress that there is within the pages of the Bible enough information to make despair of the human condition our default position. Eventually, what awaits us? Armageddon does. Disaster will overtake us. You know, atheists believe that every species on earth has its day, and in the end, even the human race will run out its course. There's going to be no vestige of humanity left. There'll be no one to observe and no one to care. And all of this will not have mattered at all. No wonder in the Western secular mood why so many people seek suicide and know the pain of despair. But atheists are wrong. The universe did not come into being out of nothing, and the complexity of what is required to allow for life is now realized to be so immense that the prospect of atheism at its very best is highly unlikely. But the problem with atheism is it still is here, and it teaches people meaninglessness and eternal blackness. See, without God, that's our only future. But what about the human condition? If God gave us the Ten Commandments and placed a temple at the center of the earth and nations, but if the covenant people of God were as wicked as the rest of us so that the temple was destroyed, what hope can there be even when we believe in God? By 516 BC, amazingly, a second temple was built. And by 167 BC, Israel revolted against the cruelty of the Syrians and they gained their own land back. Yeah, the Romans would eventually subjugate the land of Israel under their rule. But at least for a time, a renovated temple would stand as a witness to the nations. <laughs> or did it? Now, what we know about first century Judaism is a painful picture. It's filled with corruption and divisions and jealousy and darkness. And then into this world, God took initiative. As Isaiah had prophesied some 750 years earlier, a virgin gave birth and bore a son. God had done something greater than the temple. He had stepped into the human race. He was the tabernacle of God clothed in human flesh. And when he became a man, he proclaimed the kingdom of God. He healed the sick and raised the dead and commanded all of nature. And what's more, he did what no one could have done before. He drove out the demons so that the unseen world of the serpent was being assaulted and was on its heels. The people walking in darkness had seen a great light. 
But what should happen if God comes to us in human form and invites us to be reconciled to him, to end the long night of human rebellion? The answer to the question is that human beings would see the light of God and would nail him to the cross. I mean, sometimes anti-Semites blame the Jews for this. They did it, they say. You know, in the Middle Ages, they were called Christ killers. That's because as Pilate was looking for a way to release Jesus, they shouted, his blood be upon us and on our children. Now look, the reason why the Bible says that is, first of all, is because that's what some of the crowd actually said. But there's a second reason the Bible records that. All through history, God has used the Jewish people as a mirror showing the human race who we all are. The Jews, says Paul in Romans 3, are God's chosen lesson book for the nations. In short, they represent us. And thus the words, his blood be on us and on our children, is the chant of the entire human race, all of us, who would not countenance having God among us, would nail him to the cross. But the wonder of it is that the one who was nailed to the cross, that in that act, was acting according to the plan of God. It would have been a small thing for Jesus, who spoke the universe into being, could rebuke his enemies so that he would never have died on the cross. But it was the will of God to crush the Son and cause him to suffer, so that the Son of God, Jesus, the one born in Bethlehem, would suffer and die for the sins of the world, and in that act, to offer forgiveness and reconciliation for a ruined humanity. And that is the deafening thunder that comes from the cross a thunder much greater than the one that came from Mount Sinai. This is the pivotal moment in all of human history, from the creation of the universe until its end point. Since the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, God has sent first apostles, then missionaries and pastors and evangelists and teachers of the word to go all over the world and proclaim that God is making this world an offer through Jesus Christ. Be reconciled to God. Repent of your sins. Receive the grace of forgiveness. Receive the Holy Spirit. Be born again. Receive a new heart that now loves God. Since Christmas, and by the way, I mean since the event of Jesus, from his birth to his crucifixion and resurrection and his ascension into heaven, God has been making us an offer. Turn from your sin and rebellion and turn to the only hope that you have. Come into the reason for your creation. Bend the knee. Love God. Receive Christ. Accept your eternal calling. Live for his glory. There is coming a time when the present era in which grace is offered to the world will run out. Jesus promised he would return one day. At the time of his second coming, those who have died in Christ will receive a resurrection body, and those who have surrendered to him and are alive at his coming will instantly be taken up to meet the Lord in the air. And then the remainder of the human race will pick up arms and battle against Jesus. But he will easily overcome them and fulfill the promise to rule this earth. The Bible tells us of an era to come, an era called the millennium, when for a thousand years Jesus will reign from Jerusalem, the capital of the earth. And in that day, peace will finally reign. Nations will be called upon to regularly go to Jerusalem and worship the Lord there. And if they refuse to go, he will send them no rain. Now, in case you're wondering where I got that information, Zechariah 14, 17. If any of the families of the earth will not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. During the thousand years, Satan will be bound. But when the thousand years are over, 
The nations will rebel, again preferring the choice of Adam to be their own gods and walk in their own way. But this time it will be no long rebellion. Fire will come out from heaven and consume them. And with that, the long history of human rebellion will come to an end. There will be a great white throne and books will be opened. Everyone will be judged by what they have done, and a record that has been kept of every act will then be displayed. The net result will be that no one will be able to justify themselves. The just punishment that awaits the human race is the lake of fire. And from the vantage point of the scripture, the reason for despair and not for hope is now so great that the atheist vision of annihilation would be preferable to the one that scripture offers if we resist God's offer. But there is another book, and it's called the Book of Life. It's a book of all those who have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and who have repented of their life of sin, who have surrendered to him and bowed the knee and said, not my will be done, but yours be done. All who have surrendered to Christ are saved from the wrath to come and are given permission to enter a new world, the new heavens and the new earth, where tears are wiped away, where mourning and crying and pain are a thing of the past and death itself has been defeated. On Christmas, we celebrate that Christ has come, that is within God's providence. He has allowed rebellion to continue in this moment. But Christmas offers hope to a sin-soaked and suffering world. It offers hope in the form of forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. This world is not going to end with a bang or a whimper, but it's going to end when God creates a new heaven and a new earth. Christmas offers not hype, genuine hope. It's the hope that's offered by the Creator Himself who stepped into this dark world and brought light. Hope. Don't live in hype. Live in hope. Join the wise men. Bow before Jesus. Call Him Lord and God. John, thank you so much for your message and your series. But let me ask you a serious question. In a season that's often a struggle for so many and and causes depression to rise, how can we encourage those people? Yeah, I think that the reason why there's so much depression at Christmas time is obviously because, you know, some families are broken or sometimes people, you know, would have expected more and they look at their lives and say, you know, I'm barren of all this stuff. But that's where the hype of Christmas comes in. We've expected Christmas to cure us of the instant ailments, and it doesn't. And then we need to go to the hope side of things. We can look at the darkness and say, this darkness will not prevail. I will put my hope and my trust in Christ, and the present evil age will come to an end. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Christmas comes the same time every year, whether we're ready or not. We can't put the season on snooze until we're in a cheery mood. Christmas doesn't wait. It comes to find us where we are, as we are. This year, Christmas arrives to a troubled world. How can we celebrate Christmas in days of tension? It's in times such as these that Christmas is celebrated best. God sent his son as light and rescue in days of despair and darkness. The Father didn't wait for the world to improve. He sent Jesus as help and hope for us all. In troubled times, we don't delay Christmas, we run to it. 
That's our prayer for you this season. On behalf of the whole team here at Back to the Bible Canada, Merry Christmas. Jesus has come and he remains Emmanuel despite difficult days.